Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. We often talk on this channel about wondrous megastructures that will house countless billions, and factory complexes that will dwarf our plant's entire industrial output, but it makes you wonder, who's going to maintain all that stuff? Something often overlooked in building projects is that in general their maintenance and upkeep is rather staggering. Anything you build will cost you at least as much to maintain it for a generation as you spent building it, and even more if you are lax on maintenance and something breaks. I'd imagine everyone here has experienced that wonderful shock of getting a repair bill and groaning. Should you be a true glutton for punishment, the public and private sectors afford countless opportunities to stare down at a budget with grim certainty that the taxpayers or shareholders will not be best pleased with the news you will be sharing with them. Left to themselves, stuff breaks down, but it does so a lot faster when being used and in practice just from being in proximity to our civilization, and we'll see that remains true even in space where by default you'd expect the vacuum not to cause erosion and corrosion. There's a popular myth that the ancient Roman roads were ultra-durable, but while the Romans were darn good civil engineers, roads always have to be built cheaply because of the sheer volume of materials involved, and the distance they have to be transported. So while it's practical to build comparatively small critical structures like bridges ultra-strong, roads have to rely on the ground beneath them for support. Heavy vehicles eventually crumble solid surfaced roads, and wheels cut dirt roads into pairs of soggy trenches. The truth is, the Romans built a huge number of roads, and the ones that survived millennia were often the ones that fell into disuse, a tribute to quantity as much as quality. While we have built many robust structures that have weathered the centuries well, most of the buildings of the past are at best ruins and in most cases buried under layers of dirt and ash until some archaeologist finds them. Most of what remains has either required vast amounts of repair down the centuries or is basically some rock, and usually that rock only vaguely resembles what they built, which typically had nice layers of colorful coatings and ornamentation until decay, weather, erosion, or war stripped them down, or later generations cannibalized it for building materials. This gives us a short list of basic maintenance strategies. First, you can build from ultra-durable materials. Second, you can limit usage and exposure to background decay factors. Third, you can keep things simple, complexity almost always requires more effort to maintain and is generally more costly for the components too. Fourth, you can engage in constant maintenance and replacement. And fifth, which is beginning to become an option as our technology improves, you can have things which repair themselves. That last is only a strategy in the effort and economic sense of course. Otherwise, it's the same as the fourth, constant maintenance, it just doesn't involve people as much and makes the repairman more of a doctor or programmer than a classic craftsman. Each of these will likely be employed of course, tailored to the object being maintained and what your tech permits, 
or your culture does. It's important to understand that when we discuss things like megastructures, you have vastly more to maintain not just in quantity but proportionally to your human population. This is true even for the smallest and simplest of these, such as the O'Neill Cylinder, which might contain hundreds of square kilometers of internal living area and external hull, and which might house hundreds of thousands of people. To give a comparison of a simple material we build, our own modern highways usually need about a hundred people per square kilometer to maintain them. We normally discuss them in terms of linear length, where it's more like a person per kilometer or mile, but that's the approximate zone for area and for building artificial habitats all that land area needs maintenance. Indeed it's more three-dimensional too, as you'll have layers to maintain. We don't really have to maintain our air and sea and dirt and all beneath it rests upon, they do, indeed they have more metaphorical layers to maintain too, they have to look to their weather, inside and out, their ecology, possibly also inside and out, and their electronic and digital layers too. To a degree, we already have to do this, and to be fair, our ancestors did more of it than folks often realize, carefully if clumsily shepherding their lands. When you're dealing with a megastructure, you need to master these skills and use all the automation you comfortably can just to make them plausible, and to give an idea about this, let's take a hypothetical O'Neill habitat, again the smallest and simplest of megastructures, and look at what is likely being maintained. We'll start from the inside. First, we have the lighting itself. Some versions call for big windows to let light in, others light is concentrated and bounced in through small ports by mirrors, others we generated artificially by massive power plants and light bulbs. In the first case, windows, those are big structural weaknesses, even segmented into panes, that you must constantly maintain as they get scratched up and cracked from outside space dust and debris, and more so from inside dust, which must be swept out and the windows polished, and likely replaced as they take UV damage, which is worse in space. Second, small windows with concentrated lights have these same problems but reduced, but need large mirrors and dishes outside too. The third requires those artificial lights be maintained and replaced and the wiring kept up, and maintenance of either the solar panels or internal power plants that fuel them. Then there's temperature, not too hot, not too cold, and hot is likely to be the big problem as it's hard to get rid of heat in space. That wraps into weathermen, not the guys who try to predict the weather, but guys who decide what the weather will be. Such habitats are big enough for natural weather and small enough not to get extremes that we'd see on the larger supersized megastructures, but will likely be fairly planned and artificial regardless. On the ecology side, we examine that more in the environments of space habitats, and it's where we also introduce the idea of tweaking and tailoring life not just to that environment but to help maintain it as an alternative to robots. Work smarter, not harder is humanity's slogan. If you can get your critters in the habitat to do some of the work for supplemental food, like squirrels or raccoons picking up trash or weeding gardens in exchange for tasty treats, then it lets you also supplement how many critters you have in your garden wards, as they have an additional food source. This allows more top-heavy food chains too, which could not naturally exist, 
as your auxiliary space foams can add to that food supply at any level of that food chain. We talked about that and concerns about genetic diversity more in that episode, but a point we noted was that you might even be able to get them to help with your landscaping, like a modified coal that kept your shorelines intact against erosion, or some self-healing concrete. Land on Earth is old and natural and deep, yet it erodes a lot faster from our activity. On our habitat, all those hills and valleys and beaches and fjords need a lot more work to make and maintain, and since rock isn't free, you're probably not that thick down to your outer hole that's spinning around, and the inside of that might be damaged by erosion too and would be hard to get at to maintain. Now I said outer hole, but in fact it probably isn't. As we've often noted when discussing rotating habitats, while we typically depict them as a cylinder spinning in the void, in all probability they'd be a cylinder spinning in a superstructure. That cylinder hull is built for tensile strength, not absorbing micrometeor strikes or abrasion from space dust, all of which will be worse because they spin, often quite fast and faster the wider the rotating habitat. It's worth remembering what the biggest source of space dust and debris is likely to be, ships leaving the habitat, spraying it with whatever propellant they use, be it rocket flames or charged ions or even just reflected, concentrated light. That last one is a lot less of an issue, and one of the reasons I often tout the benefits of laser proportion in space. So a space habitat is less likely to be a cylinder than a big orb with a cylinder and other facilities inside it mimicking the asteroid mining era where they'd probably be built into excavated shafts on asteroids. That outer layer is likely to be a sandwich, maybe a foam metal or ideally some thin outermost layer with liquid beneath that hardened over when exposed to a vacuum to scab over punctures, and to which a micrometeor can fly through and lose energy. You might do several layers too, with deeper ones being places where you had many thin membrane compartments full of your reserves of water and air and fuel, ideally hydrogen or deuterium for fusion, though you might slap solar panels and radiators all over the outside instead. All of this of course needs maintenance, and different kinds likely need different robots. Some might magnetically crawl on the outside, polishing solar panels or welding cracks or acting like the metal equivalent of a Zamboni machine, polishing, smoothing, melting or laying new layers down on the outside. In fact, ice might be used as a cheap exterior shield too, instead of metal. You might have more drones flying around with wide spectrum cameras looking for cracks and weaknesses. Inside that thick shell, you might have that liquid and drones that swam around in there, or even tailored life forms fixing the inner layers. They might fly around in layers of gases. Indeed, you might have a thin atmosphere inside that superstructure too, from everything leaking. You want to gather that back up, waste not, want not, and higher pressures leak faster anyway, but you're likely to have a low pressure fog in there between the various pressurized facilities especially the ancillary ones where you're building cheap and thin because it's just some big hydroponic facility or mostly automated factory where people don't actually live. Other organisms might, things might easily adapt to living on leak cracks venting air, and as we saw in Void Ecology and Space Whales last month, you could end up with a fairly rich neo-vacuum ecology even if you weren't intentionally engineering it. 
there'd be a lot of trash floating around in that inevitably too, needing picked up and recycled, but also in habitat areas in general. A solar system is a big place, but when we think about the sheer quantity of megastructures we might build in one, potentially trillions of O'Neill cylinders alone, it's not so empty anymore, especially around hubs, as most planets would likely be swarming with orbital habitats. Trillions of habitats means even more trillions of ships, and if each one was losing only say one random nut or bolt or wrench or soda can out into space every week or so, you'd have quadrillions of hypervelocity bullets flying around the solar system. This is likely to be even worse near dense population areas, as losses of trash are most likely when a ship is forced taking off or arriving, meaning it's close in distance and velocity. This also means that part of being a space channel is writing up tickets for littering, and getting to operate giant laser cannons to vaporize trash, or the offenders themselves, if space littering became a capital crime. Seems extreme, but remember, throwing a soda can out your airlock is like throwing a bomb, and at relativistic speeds, an atomic bomb. So there are quadrillions of random nuts and bolts floating around at tens of thousands of meters per second. You can add a lot more rubbish coming off the whole of the megastructure itself, and while it would be slow moving locally, once it drifts away from the immediate area, it's only moving slow relative to anything that just happens to be on an identical orbital path. We've talked about Kessler Syndrome before, a chain reaction of collisions in Earth's orbit spraying debris and shrapnel around to hit other objects which in turn spray out more debris, potentially shrouding a planet in a swarm of razor-sharp hypervelocity bullets. A civilization that's building in orbit a lot, wrapping their world in thousands upon thousands of orbiting habitats, docks, and industries, has to deal with this constantly. Indeed they probably don't worry about Kessler Syndrome happening because they probably exist in a constant state of it. Odds are someone will have run a massive cost analysis on how much detection gear, how much point defense or laser broom ablation systems, and how much armor to absorb hits various ships and stations need, how much extra energy and fuel and propellant that costs, and compared it to cleanup. I just guess that it would probably mean they did a lot of debris clearance, but that your typical inhabited planet still had millions of tons of millimeter sized junk floating around. So there's going to be a lot of folks who make their living cleaning up that trash, and others issuing citations and fines for making it, and the same applies to a full-blown Dyson Swarm only scaled up a billion fold. I don't want to imply such civilizations are constantly living in a swarm of their own junk and hypervelocity shrapnel, or that it isn't manageable, but rather that it is exactly that, manageable, and given that it's being managed by humans, odds are it will be managed rather haphazardly and sloppily. And someone is going to be managing it. A recurring point on this channel is that while such civilizations will doubtless employ a lot of robots, they will probably tend to be fairly stupid robots requiring some oversight. This is not because such a civilization can't make something smarter, but because odds are the cost of having people provide that oversight will be viewed as cheaper than purchasing tons of security and weapons to prevent or contain a machine rebellion, or pay for all the public relations management and spin doctors you need to justify what is pretty much slavery. 
build something as smart as a human, and you either need to give it rights, in which case you've just created another citizen paying taxes and complaining about how much infrastructure maintenance costs, or you spend all your time fending off attacks, verbal or literal, about how you're either overtly enslaving an intelligent mind, or essentially created an entire brainwashed species that loves its job. Keep it simple, keep it dumb, or else you'll end up under Skynet's thumb, or being processed in its recycling center. Besides, the other big problem always facing post-scarcity civilizations is what to do with all the people going nuts from a lack of purpose. Speed of reflexes isn't necessarily an issue either, computers mostly excel at doing simple tasks hyper-fast, but there are options even there. I mentioned earlier that in terms of layers of infrastructure maintenance, you would also have the electronic and digital one, and it might be quite big, metaphorically speaking, as you might have a lot of uploaded digital people, cyborgs, transhumans, or folks who mostly live in virtual worlds. Don't assume just because someone wanted to move to a classic habitat cylinder, which again is not the only type of megastructure, that they are a regular baseline human, or that their kids would be. Just because your parents wanted to live on some opening garden park doesn't mean you do. Or that their AI would be. Again it's not that you don't have AI, it's just if you plan on making it as smart as a human, you best tread carefully about not thinking of it as a person, and that might mean it wants a home and time off too. Subhuman AI, modern on intelligent animals, might be a popular approach too. And if your big mechanical hull inspector drone had a brain modeled after a bloodhound, you might be giving it a virtual dog ward to hang out in when Rover is not fixing your hull. This represents a sort of shadow ecology. You might have thousands of different species of critter, from slightly tweaked normal life to massively artificial mechanical and digital life, from amoeba dumb to human smart, and all points in between, all employed maintaining that megastructure all probably mutating and being altered and patched and upgraded, all likely increasingly unique to each place, as each has its own special needs, and diversification is a good strategy against sabotage or attack too. So I always assume people are building and maintaining these things, even if the definition of people might need to be expanded, or if the building and maintaining mostly involves shouting at welding drones too stupid to realize they're trying to seal an airlock, not a leak, and sending angry emails off to the programmers about the newest software patch causing your debris clearance drones to open fire on the ones tasked with inspecting the hull because they now thought they were debris, then got themselves shot to smithereens by the station defenses that identified them as hostile after getting a distress call from the debris collectors shouting about being under fire. Incidentally, this is another reason why I always describe space habitats not as a fragile shell, but probably massively armed and armored facilities that would be death traps for an invasion force. Partially because you really do need to have some thick hulls swarming with anti-debris lasers if you expect folks to feel safe living there, and partially because that invasion force needs to be kind of careful going in even assuming all those trillions of neighboring space habitats don't care about you blowing that place up, they are not going to appreciate 10 billion tons of flaming wreckage and debris flying around the solar system. Amusingly, probably being chased by any remaining maintenance drones, a gathering swarm of salvage drones who identified it as valuable fair game assets, 
and merely getting shot to pieces by all those neighbors trying to take out the flaming wreckage with whichever of their defensive batteries aren't currently busy retaliating against the invasion fleet that caused the problem. And yeah, they probably will have those giant anti-ship guns, because having a megaton space freighter get hijacked or sabotaged and crash into your habitat is a bad time to wish you'd invested in heavy artillery. Possibly not on individual O'Neill cylinders, but as I said, those are on the small side of megastructures under discussion, and you'd probably also tend to see them clustered in packs anyway, even if they are as big as you can build for engineering limitations or economic viability, you can lash a ton of them together with tethers for easy transport to and fro, and proximity has value. So they're likely to be clustered up like islands in an archipelago, rather than evenly distributed, possibly with a superstructure around all of them. Neat thing about most space habitats, they are all basically spaceships too, albeit rather clumsy and slow ones, so it's kinda like a giant houseboat you can move around to be on its own or park in clusters to share ancillary facilities, which presumably include giant defense guns but it could easily be that those would evolve as some leviathan equivalent of RV parks, where instead of an RV going to a place that has hookups and support for lots of recreational vehicles, they have them for entire space stations. Again a space habitat is basically a somewhat clumsy spaceship, and also more like the Gardner ships we discuss for interstellar colonization. An interstellar ship needs to be totally self-sufficient except for raw materials and fuel, so they can replace any components or colonial gear damaged or decayed in century-long voyages. This effectively makes them mobile factories and colonial farms, since instead of parking at their new world forever, they can stop, drop off half their colonists in colonial gear, restock on raw materials from some asteroid, and make new gear and breed more colonists on their way to the next star possibly also new ships, since they need to be able to manufacture every part of their own ship anyway. A similar philosophy applies to space habitats. They don't have to be entirely self-sufficient if they live in built-up solar systems able to supply them, but they will need to be constantly engaging in repair and possibly growth too. This could result in cylinder halves that constantly grew in length like some coil of sausage links, occasionally detaching sections for major repair or retirement or some big circle of a rotating habitat, a small version of a topopolis that had a manufacturing center that just slowly rolled through it at a glacial pace replacing sections, like the Orbis. So long as the hoop is far wider in diameter than the thickness of it, it can be bent and rotate for gravity just fine, same as even steel can be used like a rope if long and skinny enough. Obviously you automate anything you can your limitation being how smart and sophisticated you're comfortable with that automation being. And it can be human level or smarter too, just depends on what your civilization is comfortable with ethically and smart enough to avoid killing themselves with. For instance, one of the more obvious maintenance pathways is to go the quasi-biological route, as we've discussed before and most recently in space whales and bioships. If your megastructure is basically a big animal, biological or not, with various organs overseeing repairs and cleanup, it need not be too smart, and certainly many of the parallels for microorganisms living in it doing work need not be, but it's plausible you might find it advantageous to make something pretty smart. Needless to say, you circumvent a lot of the problems by designing something that likes what it does, 
you've essentially gone and made a big space turtle whose shell you live on or inside, and you'd prefer it not mind you doing so or actually felt happy as the home to a prosperous civilization there, rather than regarding you as some sort of mold living on it or cruel taskmaster hurting and compelling it. Incidentally, when talking about artificial or engineered intelligence of human level or higher, I generally mean that in regard to its capacity for reasoning, abstraction, creativity, and so on. Raw processing power is mostly irrelevant unless it turns out that such things inevitably become sentient and sapient above a certain threshold. You are going to generally want that fairly often though, as while some maker computer able to track a quadrillion objects simultaneously need not be even vaguely sentient, if it isn't, it is very vulnerable to something stupider but smarter as it were. And of course, if you've gone the heavy artificial intelligence route, and your various megastructures are quite smart themselves, even if they generally like their jobs, some might want things changed up a bit or become bad eggs. You don't want to be living on a space turtle that's decided you're all parasitic mold and it needs to fly by the sun for some cleansing UV rays, or regards you as its precious but unwise children deeply in need of brainwashing, or it's played the long game and subtly influenced everyone to breed for stupidity or complacency toward it. Add to that, outside of one of these megastructure minds going entirely homicidal, folks would probably be very hesitant to kill one which might be rather tricky to safely do anyway, but good odds are if you're going this pathway you do regard it as inhuman but still a person or honored critter. I could imagine folks opting to evacuate such a place and leave it be, or try to talk it into some new task. A habitat becomes a nature preserve instead, or some massive warship foundry that decided each ship was its child and is panicky about where they've all gone or gotten destroyed gets repurposed into an uncrewed observational array or one with a skeleton crew, even if it's not terribly good at the job. Another fun possible story there, tons of abandoned crazy derelicts that were still quite functional but only the brave, desperate, or equally crazy wanted to visit them. Which offers another sort of maintenance, psychologists for disturbed megastructural minds, And again while you might have a single mind for a single place, the equivalent of the mythical genus loci, you are just as likely to have several for many different functions, with many layers of complexity and oversight, that shadow or machine ecology I mentioned earlier. You might possibly have a single overmind, the space turtle, but more likely some equivalent to an ecosystem rather than a single organism. I don't use the ecosystem parallel casually either, as we noted in Void Ecology, Even ignoring that biological versus mechanical is a rather vague and arbitrary thing, and a bit of a false dichotomy, such things are likely to take on characteristics of an ecosystem even if it's designed rather than evolved. It's also worth keeping in mind that most of these have ecosystems on board them too, which we mentioned earlier probably need maintenance in terms of things like genetic diversity, though the bigger megastructures can potentially be as stable as Earth in that regard. Indeed some are artificial planets or larger than planets. Those usually also would need active support to keep them from falling in on themselves, like orbital rings, and those are going to need maintenance too. Not all megastructures have anything to do with human habitation either, but we generally focus on those, partially for the obvious reason and partially because many things you need to do at a big scale don't require big objects. 
I don't need an asteroid-sized mining facility to disassemble an asteroid, many smaller ones might do the job as well. See the various megastructural and generation ship series for more discussion of those. Similarly, raw energy abundance can help with debris and maintenance. If you've enough juice, everyone just vaporizes any debris right down to atomic dust, and can go heavy-handed on the forging and recycling by just using lots of regular armor that's just raw plain metal you detach and replace and smelt down occasionally. It's good to be experts at recycling and repair in space, but you can make up for that with just raw use of simple automation, raw material, and tons of energy. There are no free lunches, nor infinite stockpiles, entropy wins out in the end, so civilizations should tend to want to be efficient, even if they don't have to be. But you might also see many phases of approaches, much as we've had here on Earth. Early energy-rich, high automation societies might cheerfully build many super-armored, resource-intense habitats that were surrounded with space litter. That's very easy to imagine in an early colonization of the asteroid belt for instance, what with all the mining and likely many habitats built inside those asteroids, then switch to other methods later. In all probability you pursue all of these approaches, simultaneously or in phases, or certain factions of civilizations prefer one route over another. Lots of types of megastructures, but I don't classify Dyson Swarms as one normally because I never think of them as likely to be homogenous, at least civilization-focused ones, there are other Dyson Swarm and Stellar Engine types. Trillions of small artificial worlds, all spread out, just never strikes me as a super unified civilization or likely to remain one if it began that way, especially since as we mentioned a couple weeks back, in threats to interplanetary and interstellar civilizations, diversification is a good survival strategy, and we saw a few more reasons why this is so this time. Of course unless your maintenance is truly perfect, you are likely to eventually hit a point of diminishing returns where you opt to build a new one and abandon the old. And we mentioned other ways you might get derelicts too, like one with an overmind that went nuts but was left be. In a system with trillions of these places, even if they are built to last as long as civilization has been around, tens of thousands of years, and even if they were only derelicts a little while, maybe a decade on average, that still means at any given time you have billions of them sitting vacant and derelict, waiting to be scavenged, repaired, hauled off to the breakers, or just waiting miserably with a few stubborn hordeouts hoping their ghost town will flourish again one day. Such a tiny fraction, small compared to the portion of vacant homes and buildings we have, and yet it's still billions of derelict megastructures, quite possibly acting as temporary homes to trillions of roamers and scavengers and pirates, a sci-fi author's dream come true, and something we'll look at more in a couple of weeks. But for now, that's space janitors and megastructural maintenance, the gritty underside of our bright future, but still pretty awesome I think. Civilizations like we were discussing today are shaped by and critically dependent on technologies like metallurgy or physics or automation, but then so are we even today, and more so every day as technologies like robotics and computer science move more and more into our daily lives. An understanding of how all this math and science works is no longer just valuable, but vital. And if you'd like to learn more math and science, and have fun while you're doing it, try out Brilliant. 
Their online courses and daily challenges let you enhance your knowledge of math and science with easy-to-learn interactive methods from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. To make it even easier, Brilliant now lets you download any of their dozens of interactive courses through the mobile app and you'll be able to solve fascinating problems in math, science, and computer science no matter where you are or how spotty your internet connection. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to Brilliant.org slash Isaac Arthur and sign up for free. And also, the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem-solving courses. I mentioned derelict space habitats and megastructures probably being very common in the future, even in a civilization that's pretty good about its maintenance and cleanup, and that's a topic that seems worthy of its own episode. So in two weeks we'll head back to the Rogue Civilization series to look at such derelicts, space hulks, trash planets, and the sorts of civilizations that might develop around them. But next week we will be celebrating our 200th regular episode here on SFIA, where we look at so many awesome things that might one day come to exist, and we'll commemorate the occasion by turning things around and looking at things which will never exist. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and you can join in the discussion in the comments below or at any of our forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Patreon, or our website IsaacArthur.net, all linked in the video description. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.